Okay. Thanks, Mark. So, uh, climate change and climate challenges is the topic for today. And I'm reminded of a saying from the British Army on the, uh, six P's of, uh, proper prior planning prevents poor performance. And I think we're getting the climate change one just a smidge wrong. Um, and you can see that in a number of areas, but, um, this is a great example when what happens when ideology meets reality and uh, you don't have a, uh, a real plan to uh, make the transition. And uh, we're dealing with a lot of the uh, outcomes of that right now. So um, it doesn't matter where you stand on climate change uh, as much as, uh, you know, I don't particularly have a, a strong feeling on, um, how fast we should get there. I know there, the problems are all the problems that are well documented and well known, but, um, the reality is making a transition requires really good planning and we're not in that state right now and it's leading to some big problems. So, uh, you know, you've seen this over the last, uh, year where we've been focused on these six transformations and, um, climate is actually a big one, but they're all interrelated. <clears throat> and what we're seeing today, just to give you a sense of the problems with uh, making the climate transition, areas we're pulling back from in fossil fuels are all having price spikes, as you can see. You know, we, we're now over $80 a barrel on uh, WTI crude. You have natural gas prices spiking around the world. The blue line is the U.S. natural gas. The red line is European natural gas. And, uh, you know, not in a great state right now, being somewhat... Uh, uh, hamstrung by uh, getting their natural gas from Russia and how that game is being played out in the politics around Nord 2, creating some real strains there. Price of coal uh, skyrocketing, and uh, as much as we're trying to move away, it's a key element of, of how we make the transition. And I think there are basically four big problems right now with the climate transformation. The first is the demand for uh, for uh Energy is growing faster than renewable sources can replace the expected shortfall on fossil fuels. So we, we're desirous of a transition, don't have a great plan to get there, and are dealing with some of the consequences that you can see in these spikes in prices. The second issue is that renewables are currently less reliable than fossil fuels. You know, we've been working with fossil fuels for over 250 years. Um, you can't make that transition as fast as people want to make without uh, either massive investments in better technology than we have or um, other issues. But it's less reliable because turbines need wind, um, droughts impact hydro, solar needs sunlight, and transporting energy between regions is costly. So we don't have it where it's as dependable as the fossil fuels are. Climate change is also making renewable energy less reliable because it's changing the weather patterns and making the patterns more severe. And I've talked about the um, the jet stream, the Gulf Stream uh, shifting and the wobbling of the uh, of the jet stream is actually creating more uh, less predictable weather patterns. So relying on um, some of the weather generated uh, sources make it more difficult and, and uh, more costly. Um, so we're also ironically at the risk of, uh, as we get these more frequent and, and more severe uh, natural disasters, 
if we don't uh, address climate change more quickly, that's going to continue. On the other hand, we're also going to be experiencing more blackouts and electricity rationing if we don't manage the transition more effectively. So who gets hurt from that the worst? And when we have power outages, it tends to be those uh, less fortunate. Um, and also it'll be the politicians because they're going to be facing pretty hostile crowds if uh you know, their election platform uh, leaves people without the power to uh, run their, uh, you know, power up their houses, do their jobs and, and the like. It also uh, comes at a time that we have significant challenges for uh, investment patterns, which is creating a, a more problems as well. And I'd say there's a, a bonus problem is that we have an old grid and uh, it's set for historic pattern uh, usage patterns and with EVs work from home we're having changing usage patterns and that's expected to pick up and they're projecting you know the projections are all over the place in this area but one of the ones I saw today was that um, EVs will double the demand for electricity in the U.S. and uh, with our aging grid system that's going to create problems and place greater demands on the electric grids which is going to create um you know, bigger problems. And then the last one. Sorry. Did you mean to have a coal um, price slide on the whole time? Yeah. As I was going through, because I'm getting to the next one. Thanks, Mark. So now we're at the uh, next area, which is what happens going forward. And this is actually the one that was a real eye opener for me. And this is a recent OPEC report. And they're projecting the increase in uh, daily oil equivalent um, from 2020 to 2045. And at the far left, the first three bars are oil. The next three bars are natural gas. So oil is projected, uh, and the total number, uh, is in the gray. So it's non-OPEC, uh, non-OECD, OECD in total. So oil demand by 2045 is going to grow by 16 million barrels a day. Gas, natural gas is going to grow by over 21 million barrels a day. And other renewables will grow just under 30. The problem with this is we're stopping investment in the first three areas, and we're going to require them to investment in those areas to help make this transition. And that's going to put greater strains on it. And this is coming at a time that you have uh, investment dollars being moved away from oil and natural gas, moving towards renewables, and that's reducing the supply that's available. So rig counts are down, um, supply is down, and we're, we're actually running into this mismatch of, mismatch of supply and demand. And what is really telling is the oil demand right now is about 90 to 94 million barrels a day. So adding 16 million barrels to that uh, by 2045 is actually a big deal. And I think this is part of the dilemma that we're going to be facing. So ironically, one of the best areas for investment opportunity is the one that most people are moving away from, which is fossil fuels, because you have greater financial discipline from the companies because they can't go to the capital markets just to promote growth like they used to. So they're running their businesses more for uh, earnings and profit growth and uh, rather than just pure revenue growth. So I think this is a big change. And there's, so there's a lot of dynamics at play here. And we think this is going to be a a key element. And the other thing I would just add is, as we're seeing with the short-term price spikes in a lot of these commodities, um, we're going to have a 
a problem where climate change is going to be inflationary in the short term and over the long term is probably going to bring inflation down uh, as we get uh, the transition complete. But it's going to take some time. And this is one of the areas that uh, without the right balance of investments, we're going to continue to have challenges. So our base case is that we continue to invest for these six transformations. Um, but you also have to be careful. You can't just run away from where money is moving from because we think that's going to be some of the best opportunities for investments. The climate transition will be more difficult and more expensive than advertised. But it's also a key point here is the U.S. is in a very different place than we were in the 70s and early 2000s, given our energy independence. And that actually makes us less politically reliant on other areas for it, but also makes us less price dependent on other areas because we can increase production if we choose to. Uh, again, it takes some time, but that's a, that makes us very different than where we were. Consumers, corporations, and governments are all spending on innovation and to improve productivity and, and uh, clean energy is one of those areas. So a lot of dollars will flow here, but um, we also think that it's going to be misallocated in, in some of these cases, and that's going to create investment opportunities. Importantly, as it comes to the energy sector right now, which is only 2.8% of GDP of uh, the S&P weighting right now, um, but our needs are are great in this area, so there's a mismatch there. So you're getting more dollars need to flow to an area that's being underinvested in. At the same time, we need to invest in the renewables. So I'm not saying we shouldn't invest in renewables. We shouldn't keep the climate transformation going. I'm just saying that the transition is going to take longer and will be more expensive and give you opportunities to make money in some of the fossil fuel companies as we move forward. We still think equity investing is the best game in town, both in the energy space um, and it's private and public. Uh, we continue to think China is a big key area here, whether it's in the public markets, whether it's in the regulatory environment or whether it's in climate change. Um, but this is an area where you actually have to let go of old rules and your old investment patterns and look at every problem with a fresh view because um, you know, what's going on in the energy area is going to create a lot of opportunities to make money, uh, both in the fossil fuel area and lose money in the, uh, in the green energy area as well. Not everything's going to work out according to plan. So I'm going to stop here, open it up for other people's views. I'm not negative on the climate transition. I'm just suggesting it's going to be more difficult and that fossil fuels create a good opportunity. And just to give you a sense, um, the S&P weightings have been this low, I think, twice before uh, the 70s and the early 2000s. Um, and each time you had a move up that could have been uh, anywhere from a double in the weighting to uh, in 07, 08, it moved up to 15% weighting of the S&P. So uh, just keep that in mind. When things get this low, they actually tend to revert back to um, more normal levels. And so we think that this is an exceptionally low and oversold area and that some of the fossil fuel companies can create uh, some opportunities to build capital, particularly if you're not restricted to an ESG mandate. Um, so this is going to be one of those funny dynamics where social policy and the right social policies and environmental policies and even economic policies don't match up to the reality of how we get there. And that's going to create some opportunities for investors who can move away from the crowd. So I'll stop there, Mark, and open it up for
discussion. Thanks, Stephen, as always. And again, we, Greg Schuller will, will speak uh, to this shortly. Uh, any questions on what you just saw from Stephen Burke? Uh, let me take in uh, ahead, opinion here, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, everything Stephen said is directionally correct and not nearly strong enough. The climate agenda is going to impoverish the world. Just, just so you know, Chris White, if you don't know him, is uh, sits in Houston, has been developing oil and gas and emerging markets, Brazil, Colombia, Romania. And, and in the backyard. And we've had this discussion for a while. Um, so I, I, so I, I see the interesting bedfellows there. Uh, any other, you, Bill, you had a quick? Question? Yeah, just a, just a quick one. Stephen, you kind of alluded to this, but with the demand for renewables, like in the, you know, in the 30, you know, which exceeds oil and gas, is that even feasible? given the level of development that we have in renewables at this point in, in time? Hard to answer, Bill, but I always look at the innovations that are going on and think that things will take longer in the initial stages and then happen much faster when they get going. So I think we're in that stage where, where we're in, over-investing in fossil fuels without the return on them because we have that cost differential issue going on. And I think then it will. So I do think there's a transitional issue here that will determine it and an innovation issue. But um, the path we're going is not a good one. Uh, it's devoid of logic, to be honest. Yeah. With you. If, if, yeah. Just just a follow up comment. I, I I think I think you have hit on such an important point because at at this stage of the game, to to a large degree. It seems to me that policies is actually driving opportunities that are potentially non-economic. And, you know, we could run into the crunch that you allude to that Chris stated very succinctly, uh, which is, which is a really strange and dangerous road to be driving on. Yeah. The, the, I think the climate discussions are like when you go hear a motivational speaker and you get all amped up and you run out to the car all excited about what you're going to do and then you forget why you were running. Um, I think we know why we're running. I just don't think we know how to get to the, the transition the right way. And I think that, uh, there's too much ideology in this and not enough practical application. I, I do think the transition will happen and, and be good for us, but I think it's going to be a, a rough, road there. And I think there's going to be a lot of money to be made by the areas that people are running away from. Last question. Just for this segment, because we're going to transition. I do think, Mark, if I can just add, I think this is a going to be a political third rail and a lot of guys are going to come out on the wrong, guys and gals are going to come out on the wrong side of this as politicians and get booted pretty quick uh, in their regions because people who don't have power and, you know, Chris, you saw this in Texas last year, you know, our grid system's not up for this transition. And if we try and do all the things on the social agenda that's out there and don't knock off some of these key ones one at a time, we're not going to be able to have the money to do what we need to do. So, Fair enough. 
Well, well, I, yeah, I, I would say that, that you know, I, a lot of what happened on the Texas grid system is being blamed on renewables here that should be being blamed on the people that run it. Yep. There's still been insufficient accountability for some very poor decision-making that went on during that crisis. So. Well, let, let, let's, uh, Istiake, I, I want to, uh, can you hold that thought, that question? Uh, or Duncan, uh, I brought you on, but I want to, I want to allow uh, Greg Schuler to, to weigh in with his, his view because he's been investing in this transition and then we'll, we'll keep the conversation going if that's okay. Is that you, Joe? Or is that you, Greg? Who's You're on mute, actually. You might want to unmute. Okay, can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. So before I jump into the presentation, um, you know, Stephen, first of all, you did a great job on your presentation. I think there's a lot of savvy comments and insight in what you presented, and I the piece that I want to highlight that you have in there is this is going to take a long time and this is going to take much longer than any of us think it's going to take. And I, I was talking to my wife about this last night. I worked at Sun Venture in 1998 and I remember the discussion about video on demand and we talked about video on demand in 1998, like it was going to happen next year. And when we look back over history True video on demand probably didn't start until late 2017 or 2018. It took 20 years to really get to true VOD. And I think that's what we're seeing in this discussion around energy transition. And I think where Stephen's got it 100% right is fossil fuels do provide a lot of opportunity. And I think what we've got to be focused on here as we think about energy transition is what fossil fuel has the lowest CO2 emissions it's natural gas by a very large margin. So I, I think as we look at the opportunities in the market set, I think it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we paint every piece of the fossil fuel complex as being the same. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to be made here. And I think Chris had a very interesting observation as well, is that there's going to be a ton of money behind climate transition. So while pl- fossil fuels will have its role, There's also a lot of great investment opportunities that are going to come out of the transition because of the tremendous dollars that are coming from two areas, corporates and from sovereigns. I mean, you see what's happening with the Climate 100 and the climate commitments that are happening at the corporate level in the U.S., but also there's enormous commitments at the sovereign level. So the energy transition where I want to start this is it's going to take a long time. And my first slide is the way most people think of the energy transition. They think it's transitioning from coal, gas, and oil to hydro, wind, and solar. And the reality of it is it's much bigger than just that. It's the second part of this that we never talk about is efficiency. The the part that um, people don't realize is we're very inefficient in our power consumption and our use of fossil fuels. And so we need to add a second piece to the energy transition. It's yes, solar, wind, hydro, and potentially hydrogen 30 years from now are going to be important parts of what we do. But we need to 
better use our assets um, to optimize their utilization. And, and as we think about what we're doing at Waterton, and I should have started out at, uh, at this at the beginning, I left Pitt at the end of June to start a investment management company that will focus on energy transition. And energy transition for us won't be investing in wind on the equity side or solar on the equity side. The returns are far too low. If we did something in wind and solar, it would be providing the picks and shovels to build out, as Stephen mentioned, build out the transmission infrastructure, build out solar farms, build out wind towers. That's where the money is to be made. It isn't on the equity side of these projects. So as we think about the energy transition, there's really three phases to it. And the phase that most of us are going to be investing into is going to be the asset optimization phase. How do we use our existing assets to reduce CO2 emissions? That's going to be the opportunity set for most of us. The second phase will be asset replacement. Once the coal plant becomes obsolete, you replace it with a cogen plant or a wind or a solar plant. That's going to happen over the next 15 to 25 years, and it's happening slowly now, but we know that the coal plants that are in existence now won't be replaced until they're obsolete. And then the final phase is what I would call Eureka. So this is green hydrogen or some other form of technology that we don't even know about today, which will be able to provide and satisfy our power requirements. So let's focus on asset optimization because that's really the area where we're going to be able to invest into. So if you look at U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, the two biggest area of emissions for the U.S. are transportation and electrical generation. And as Stephen mentioned in his part, electrical generation demand's only going to grow here, and it's going to grow very rapidly. So as we think about the energy transition, where we're looking at investment opportunities is how do we feed into the infrastructure that's going to get built out at the power plant and the transmission level? How can we make money there? That's going to be opportunity one. Number two is around transportation. And this is particularly important for asset optimization and efficiency. How can we use internal combustion engines today and use them more efficiently so that we're emitting less CO2. And an an easy example on the technology side uh, is a company based here in Pittsburgh where they've developed a software platform where they can integrate sensors in a traffic grid with inside a city. And according to traffic flow, they'll control the flow of light so that there's less idling during rush hour with cars. So the traffic flow is more constant. They estimate by using technology like that that you can reduce emissions by 30% during rush hour. So that's one example where in transportation, we think about what are asset optimization investments that we can use that will reduce emissions. Another example would be uh, in Europe, we made an investment in a SaaS platform that brought together carriers and shippers and reduce the amount of um, empty deadheading trucks that were returning home. And it benefited the carrier in that they had an improved ROE by using those empty empty, uh, trips. And we had shippers benefit from the fact that they got lower cost shipping by being able to access those empty trucks. But the ultimate result for the um, environment is you could move more goods and services Um, using the same level of CO2 emissions. So ultimately for us, that's what 
energy transition is. How do I support growth? Because no one in the world has said during this period of energy transition that I'm not willing that I'm willing to accept lower levels of growth. So we still have to have economic growth around the world. And that's illustrated in Stephen's graphs around growth of fossil fuels. We still need to have growth, but how do we have growth with lower levels of CO2 emission? So any questions? So I've thrown out a lot of information there about what the transition looks like. And I'm just going to finish off by talking about what we're focused on. But any questions before I talk about what are our two areas of concentration? Okay, so the two areas that we're really focused on from an investment perspective is electrification and transportation. So, for example, right now we're working on an investment called Nacero. And Nacero is a company in the U.S. that has a technology that uses natural gas to manufacture gasoline. So back to the asset optimization strategy, what this does is it produces gasoline that's readily available in octane of anywhere from 87 to 93. You can use existing gasoline pipelines, existing gas stations, and it feeds into automobiles with no alterations required. So you're optimizing existing assets and it reduces CO2 emissions by 50% because you're using natural gas as your feedstock versus oil. So this is a very, I won't say easy because the facilities are expensive to build, but once you've got the facility built, you're feeding into existing infrastructure that can immediately reduce CO2 emissions using existing internal combustion engines. And we know internal combustion engines are going to continue to be a very important part of automobile sales in the U.S. for the next two to three decades. So this is a great solution that Nasero provides to reduce emissions today. So under transportation, you know, production of new fuels that re- reduce carbon emissions is Nisero. Um, lightweighting of automobiles, Stephen had another interesting insight when he gave his part that we got to look at areas that we normally haven't looked at in the last two or three decades. Automobiles is one of them. Autos are singularly the sector with the greatest amount of CapEx and the CO2 reductions. And you saw the announcement that came out last week that um, – Ford was opening two plants for $11 billion in Kentucky and Tennessee to support their EV build-out. So there's going to be tremendous amounts of opportunity in the automobile sector, not at not so much at the Ford, GM, Chrysler level, but at the auto OEMs where you can lightweight automobiles to improve gas mileage. Um, repositioning of manufacturing closer to the consumer to eliminate transportation, that's going to be a great area of opportunity. And technology development like that uh, sensor technology that I mentioned for traffic flow, there's going to be a lot of technology developed to improve um, asset utilization. Then electrification, um, this is pretty common sense. This is going to be intuitive to everyone. So we're seeing a lot of creation of microgrids where you're not tied into a large grid, but you create a plant uh, and micro infrastructure to support your manufacturing and you're not tied into a large grid. Uh, harnessing stranded electrical generation. We're seeing this in places like Canada where they have stranded hydro that you can utilize. Um, um, manufacturers are going to benefit from the transmission alternative energy build-out, so buying and investing in companies that will have that growth trajectory behind them. 
and then um, the development of alternative energy projects to displace coal and bunker fuels. So in places like Brazil, uh, India, uh, alternative energy projects still generate returns on equity in the high teens and low 20s. So those are very attractive projects that are investable in emerging markets, not in the U.S. And that's a very important thing, because as you think about the graphs that Stephen had up, if we can get alternative energy projects into an emerging markets, it allows us to displace some of that demand growth that we're anticipating in fossil fuels in non-OECD countries. So that was a quick summary of the way we look at the world and the energy transition. And just wanted to remind everyone that I think the most important thought is that this is going to take way longer than we all expect. There's going to be tremendous amounts of investment opportunity around this. And there's going to be some poor sellers in the fossil fuels areas that that is going to allow you to pick up some cheap assets that will be attractive investment opportunities over the long run. That's it for me, Mark. Thanks, Greg. I saw some questions in the chat. I don't know if you want to coordinate those or or me. Yeah, go for it. Do you want to just unpack them and walk through it, or do you want to see if the people I, – I, let's see. Hey, 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 Greg, I had a quick question, if I could. Yes, please. Uh, it, it's, it's Rob. Um, you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of opportunities, but you also mentioned, um, you know, the need for patience. Uh, have, can you describe an element of duration or an element of what you feel is going to be a um, um, sort of a median – um, uh, return from from your fund? Yeah, I think the return actually in my fund, and this isn't marketing, this is something that I believe yeah. in, is I think the returns actually are better in the energy transition than any other sector other than technology. And the reason for that is, is it goes back to the dollars that are going to go into this sector. Corporates and sovereigns are going to be putting a lot of money into the sector and you and that sector will be the beneficiary of it. So I think why the returns are going to be very attractive is the growth trajectory that many of these companies are on. I'll give you an example of it. When I was at Pitt, we made six direct investments um, for $90 million in alternative energy. In 18 months, that portfolio is already up 60%. And after a write-up that's going to occur in September, that portfolio will be up 2.4 times. And that's all the result of the fact that the growth trajectory in these companies is enormous. And they provide an incredible amount of opportunity during a period where we're all seeing very inflated valuations in, in traditional venture and bios. So I think it's a very robust return environment because people um, are, this is still very early and the valuations haven't rolled up in a lot of these companies yet. I have a question, if I may, um, you mentioned, Greg, the oil and gas companies and maybe even Stephen references, they have great, they have greater efficiencies now focusing on profits, not just, you know, sort of growing revenues. The utilities, the electric power grid, the, the traditional utilities don't seem to have had much, uh, in the way of gains in these areas because they're rate basing so much. What do you anticipate that will shake up the traditional utilities within our system in the U.S.? I don't think that's a great question. Actually, I don't think anything changes that model. I think it will continue to be a rate-based model. Um, and that's why I think you have to be buying into the picks and shovels. So uh, an example is when I was at Pitt, we invested in a company that had two business lines. One was 
They fed into the infrastructure for utility-grade solar. And their second business was building foundations for wind turbines and transmission towers. So I think the money to be made is not in the utilities themselves. They're going to have the same business issues they've always had. The money to be made is feeding into the projects as this expansion goes along. So it's into the transmission lines themselves. It's into the towers. It's into wind. It's into the solar. And I don't think in the U.S., again, it's in the equity of those projects. It's in feeding into the um, build-out of those projects. Questions? Thank you. A, a follow on really quickly. Uh, so much of what we read about smart cities is about next generation infrastructure that's going to require more electricity for the 5G, yeah. the PIN infrastructure. Talk yeah. about the demand. Uh, I mean, that's perhaps at least as great, I'm imagining, as EV increased demand. Comments yeah. on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so there's really two points to be made here. One is we need to get way more efficient. We're very inefficient in the way that we use power. And there's a great investment opportunity to invest into smaller companies that will be benefactors of this push towards efficiency. So that's a hidden opportunity here. Efficiency. But the the second one is there's going to be explosive demand for electricity. And I'll give you one example of it. So you hear people talk about hydrogen. So hydrogen is already an industrial fuel. If you used electrolysis to produce all of the existing hydrogen that's occurring around the world, just the existing hydrogen, that's enough electricity to power the entire EU. So this demand for electricity is going to be enormous, and the, and that is why this is going to be a great opportunity to focus on the build-out of that infrastructure. And it's not going to be just in the U.S. It's going to be around the world, particularly emerging markets. There's those projects are very, very attractive from an ROE perspective. If you can get yourself over the hurdle of the expropriation and repatriation risk, it's, there are great opportunities there. But are you saying that you're saying that you don't think the equity investment is the right investment? You think it's a debt investment, a project finance type thing that you're – Yeah, I'm referring specifically to if you looked at a solar project in the U.S., I wouldn't take the equity position in a solar project. I would take the, the supplier route and take the equity position there. So who, who are the people that are supplying the steel and the infrastructure to build those projects out or the services to actually put the towers in place? That's where I would take my equity position, not in the actual project itself. Lauren, you had a question? You're on mute. Didn't say much about electric vehicles. Or can you use this same logic you're talking about in terms of not going for the equity and going for the, you could say, investment in the infrastructure? Can you use that same logic when you're talking about uh, electric vehicles? I mean, I'm trying to promote the idea of trying to build build that up, particularly in Chicago or in, you could say, urban communities that you could you know, start to build some of this infrastructure. But what what do you what do you think? Of I think you're right on the money, Lauren. I think that's exactly the play. So let me um, give you an example. So when I was at Pitt, we invested in two auto OEMs. One of them was building aluminum chassis for Chrysler's EV build out around the world, and the second one was um, doing um, traditional light weighting and using aluminum for lightweight automobiles for improved miles per gallon. But, Lauren, to your question more specifically for EV, 
I do think the play is in the pick and shovel. So back, look for auto OEMs and suppliers that are actually going to benefit from this build out in, in EV infrastructure. Back to the um, announcement around Ford. Who's going to be the benefactors of that build out of the $11 billion facilities in Kentucky and Tennessee? I think you need, we need to look at not so much uh, Ford, GM, Chrysler, Audi, VW. We need to look at what's the supply chain that's going to feed into this build out of EV that's going to be the benefactors of it. So another one would be who's going to be the benefactor of building recharging stations? So it's going to be, let's focus on the build out of the infrastructure. That's where I think the money is to be made with stable, stable cash flows and stable uh, growth multiples. I mean, I also thought that this is also, you could say an opportunity to you, if you know, there's any, let's say space for the impact that any of these investments make. I think, yeah, that's what I've been talking to people about that there's all these other, you could say side let's say infrastructures that have to be built out, you know, the, the system for the, you know, the charging station and, and that whole thing, the maintenance of those, uh, there's probably going to have to be a whole like industry just, you know, talking about repairing and installing batteries. Right. Exactly. And how do you, and I think what's going to become a much bigger issue for all of us, Lauren is um, life cycle. What happens to those batteries at the end of life? We all know what happens to wind turbines at the end of life. It's not an acceptable outcome the way that we dispose of wind turbines currently. So life cycle. Is there any, is, innova- is there any, do you know, do you, is, or anyone else, is there any innovation on the horizon as far as that's concerned? Cause yeah, you could say disposing yes. of these batteries is a huge, huge problem, right? Yes. Actually, there are companies which are starting the space and one of them belongs to TechMed. Uh, it was packed quite recently for $900 million. It is in Rochester, New York. There's a lot of investment. We see this in the patent data going into new battery types, rechargeable batteries, and also the uh, reuse and recycling of battery technologies. Mm-hmm. Happy to share that data if anyone thinks Please do. Simon, Simon. I was going to say I would. I would love to see that. I would love to see all of that. Simon, just to clarify, what what the TechMet, one of its subsidiaries had had is in the you were speaking of. Yes, exactly. Which which one? I will send you a link. Uh, I don't remember it by heart, but. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. Greg, nice. Uh, quick. The quick. interesting story is that they invested. I think in 2018, the valuation was probably around uh, $15 million. So it was a huge success. Good for them. Greg, can I, uh, can I first thank you for this great contribution? Um, what do you, can you uh, speak a little bit about the opportunity and perhaps also the obligation of big oil and gas companies coming into the net zero requests? Uh, and, and what, what do you think their, uh, sort of investment opportunity on, on the, on the horizon over the next couple of decades? I think for big oil, I think that a, a highly probable outcome for them is what, what I would call full cycle carbon. And they're the individuals that are pulling the carbon out of the ground. I could see it becoming a likely strategy. A likely strategy where they actually do uh, carbon recapture and reject it into idle and empty wells. 
So I think that is, if you look at a lot of the research that, for example, Exxon is doing, they do a lot of work around LG, for example. I think what we're going to find is that the greatest optimization of that balance sheet is using recapture and reinjection um, or finding alternative um, uses for CO2. Uh, but I think that's ultimately where big oil goes. It's going to be how do I recycle that carbon and put it back into the ground so that um, full cycle on net neutral. Thanks. Greg, I'm just curious if you have any kind of uh, insight on what BP's uh, new CEO, Bernard Looney, is doing with uh, his strategy and commitment to um, – only invest in renewable energies and and kind of divest from all most of the fossil fuel? Yeah, I mean, Luke, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think what the, it's sort of back to Eddie's question. I think what big oil does have is incredible balance sheets with incredible operating cash flow. Um, So there is the possibility that BP becomes an integrated provider of of energy and part of it, and we see this with Nestios, right? And Nestios is divesting its traditional refining business in a couple of years. But Nestios is an example of an integrated provider that has a carbon business, a carbon generating business and a carbon neutral business. So Luke, I think BP could be one of those solution providers that is able to do um, integrated solutions, but carbon still going to be part of their footprint. That's ultimately where their cash flow is going to come from to support um, research in carbon neutral areas. I mean, the other kind of follow on question that is what's preventing or at least uh, I guess part of that strategy, it seems like, you know, probably the big oil, if they're really trying to get rid of that stuff. They're just going to sell those assets to another company. It's going to be someone else's headache eventually just so they can meet the mandates. Yeah, I think I think this is, you know, I'm going to show show my true colors here, but I I think there's some real wisdom in Stephen's um, presentation where he shows the the difference between OECD and non-OECD and what's the demand around fossil fuels and we actually have growth over the next 30 years in both those categories. And so I think the majors will continue to produce carbon um, generating fuels, they'll just be a lot smarter about being optimizing just the most attractive projects. So Luke, they'll probably sell non-core that isn't as attractive and they'll continue to do large projects like Gulf of Mexico or offshore projects that have very high ROE, but they still will produce fuels that feed into that growth story that we're gonna see around the world. And that, that operating cash flow can be used to offset some of the negative publicity they're going to get in the form of research that will hopefully be like Nestios where they can reduce emissions using alternative technology that they develop. Uh, Greg, what happens when they start buying up uh, renewable energy companies and start changing their mix and start looking like not just fossil fuel companies? How does that fit? And what does that mean for people in determining the transition? Yeah, I think, Stephen, I think that's an inevitability. So if you think about Nasiro, the company that we're sponsoring right now, I think one of the most likely exits in the next 24 months is a major purchasing this company. They're going to, if you look at their um, first two facilities, it will reduce U.S. total emissions by 1.2%. One company, two facilities. And I think a major is going to look at that, Stephen, and say, 
that is a great company. I got to buy it. I don't care how much I pay for it. And I think that's the, you know, um, back to the question someone asked earlier about the returns. I think for early movers into this space that aren't paying the premium that they're going to get in five years when they sell these companies, that provides one of the greatest return opportunities here as people are in a position of must buy and must have assets. Yeah, I think the other thing that we're going to see with the public publicly traded companies, particularly the majors, is that they're going to be reducing their share counts consistently, creating better returns for their investors in a way that uh, they can't make the investments. So they're going to actually be buying back shares, increasing dividends, doing special dividends. And and as they continue to do the M&A, they're going to redefine their portfolios. So people have to be careful about falling asleep on some of the opportunities from these traditional companies. And the other thing is there's so much natural gas produced with oil that you're going to have uh, some very interesting portfolios developed for these companies over time. And I think that uh, that's going to be a, a pretty significant change. So you, you can't fall asleep on these guys. It's not like the tobacco industry, I don't believe. I think this is going to be a different transition. So, Stephen, you don't – so I, I don't have a view on this. Um, do you think – Big oil could look like tobacco. I mean, with tobacco is exactly what you said, right? They have very large share buybacks and very large dividend yields. Um, do you think you don't think oil becomes that? I I think they'll definitely be that part, but I think they're gonna. I think the the best are gonna evolve. I think the technology, the money that they have, will give them a technology spend advantage, mm-hmm. and that'll enable them to make the transitions, buy assets cheap. And the question is, do they become like? Uh, Apple, Microsoft, and and Google, uh, and Amazon buying up all the future technologies that prevent competitors from growing in their area. I think they could use their balance sheets for massive R&D spends and taking them into new areas. Uh, so I, I would suspect that that'll be something they do, um, which will make them very different companies over time, but none of this happens very quickly. Well, wasn't that the um, kind of argument that uh, most people kind of accused the big uh, players of doing is buying up the, that newer technology and then just sitting on it because it's just cheaper to operate what they have in place right now. And that, that's the whole kind of reason why we're in this the situation we're in is that a lot of those companies held on to those patents or the technology and they just sat on it. And now all of a sudden... It's, I think that's a cost issue, though, less than a desire issue. If the cost of of the technology of getting it to market was going to be produce better returns yeah. than traditional, they would stay. But I, I think this is not as not as much about not upsetting the gravy train. And now they actually have the motivation to do it because they have existential issues. So I think it's they, different now. Stephen, I got a question for you. Um, you know, you've had all these endowments and pension funds, et cetera, that have said they're divesting themselves of fossil fuel companies. You know, at some level, you know, they they can they can set up their you know investment criteria any way they want, but A, they really do have to generate returns. And B, to the extent that some of those companies start transitioning and create sort of fossil fuel resources more with a more socially conscious bent, uh, can you see any of that reversing? Um, 
Or, um, I mean, I guess I'm sort of getting back to this business. If you look at the energy sector in terms of the public markets, it's a small percentage of the equity markets, certainly relative to anybody on this call's personal spend habits. Um, and that seems to be because people have just been on strike for investing in these companies, right? So is there a catalyst uh, where you could sort of see some of that capital come back in? Um, or are we going to just sit here for 10 years and pretend like these companies aren't generating any any cash flow? There's value, value to an investor. That's a great question. I think capital always flows to the highest rate of return. Uh, you just want to be there early. And I do think you're going to see very high rates of return from the fossil fuel companies um, from a couple forces. One, just the way they're doing their financial management and investing less in growth. Um, but two is these, this M&A activity that Greg was talking about is real, and they're going to redefine their portfolios in a way that gives them even more cash um, to then do more buybacks and other things. So I, I think it positions them in a very unique way. Not that they don't have real issues of getting there and execution issues, um, but I think there's a, I think there is a path for a couple of these guys to make the transition, not everybody. And, and it's interesting if you go back to what Norges did, they actually, when they sold out their fossil fuels, they kept two companies, you know, BP and Royal Dutch. Um, so there's a sense of where they can go. And if you look at investing in the U.S., um, you look at something like a Pioneer or some of those companies that have really good growth piles and really good assets. And if you're in a domestic market selling mostly domestically, that actually has some dynamics too. So I think there's an opportunity for a couple of these guys to transition. Um, I think that some of the big ones are going to have real issues and, you know, Exxon certainly is working with a big bullseye on their chest right now um, with the activist involvement there. But I just think that there are companies, if they state their plan and can execute on it, that will get rewarded by the market. So take uh, for example, right? So Shell just, Shell just sold $9 billion of assets at, from what I read, really cheap valuations, great producing assets, cheap valuations to uh, ConocoPhillips, right? And then Exxon's got board members that are now, you know, this engine number one group that's sort of pushing a different agenda in the boardroom. Which company is going to actually perform on an earnings basis? The company that's divesting itself of the, of the cash flowing assets to look green or the company who hasn't really executed on that, but has board members that are going to try to push a different agenda with them. Um, I mean, you know, to me, this is, it's an interest. It's a really interesting conversation. I'll throw one other thing in here is, you know, the, the U.S. Can, the OEC consumer is the one that's going to fund this. That is mm-hmm. who is going to fund this this transition. Um, I mean, the dynamics are just you know fascinating on this. And um, I mean, I guess I started with a question, and then I'm giving you a statement. But I mean, maybe you have some thoughts, further thoughts on it. Uh, agree with the statement and the question. Um, I think on the question, though, I have a different, little different take on it, which is. What if the companies are selling off assets that add more value to the company that's buying it than it would have in terms of the list of return on investment for, for Exxon, for example, or in the, in the case of Royal Dutch, what they sold that nine, nine billion? What's their cost to develop versus what's their return expectations and how fast versus other projects they have? So you could argue that doing the right thing 
in terms of the divestitures is actually a good thing financially as well. So it doesn't have to be an either or that you can't do the right thing and, and benefit as well. I think for companies like Royal Dutch, Exxon and those, they have a lot of assets that if they divested of them, uh, they're non-returning assets that can put a bigger, uh, that just by getting divesting them will, will improve their returns and actually direct capital to more higher return projects. So I think there's an element that uh, well-managed companies can navigate this um, by using their their money to the right advantage. Duncan, I think you should consider the possibility that uh, the, the catalyst that you're looking for is in front of you right now. And that this is happening at this moment. Yeah, I think, Chris, you bring up a great point in that um, the crisis is real. The transition's absolutely necessary to have happen. We have to do it very fast, but it, you can't just flick the switch. And if we don't solve, um, if we want to solve the, the climate change issues, um, we're going to have to do it at the same time we insulate the economy from these extreme shocks. And you're seeing that in the spike in energy prices in Europe. You're seeing it in uh, other areas. So I think it's the balance that we have to get right. And I think people have to be a little less ideologic and a lot more economic in how we do this. Well, well look, we, we can't get this right. Okay. If the U.S. does all of this and the rest of the, and Europe, the U.S. and Europe do all of this and the rest of the world doesn't, it's not going to be got right. It's yeah. an utter failure. Yeah. So this is ludicrous to say, oh, you can get it right. You can't get it right. Yeah, agreed. Um, I'm just going to add this real quick, and i got to get going, but um, I just want to bring up to the attention that uh, I've been looking at some of the stuff against uh, Australia and China. It looks like Australia cut the coal supply to China, which is a special type of coal that gives – it's real fine powder. And so China has already had rolling blackouts. Um, because of flooding, but it's kind of a domino effect now. So China also put out a directive to increase coal mining uh, extraction for the shortfall to make up for it because um, they can't get coal supplies. So it's a recipe for disaster, not enough uh, time to replace that supply. And it's also affecting uh, manufacturing and, and, and uh, will eventually hit uh, supply chain uh, manufacturing. So that's going to be a global impact. You have another question? Lauren? Well, I just kind of had a comment that, you know, I guess one dynamic, maybe we're talking about all this in terms of, you know, what these companies are looking at or where they're going. I mean, there's also a lot of talk that younger generations particularly are, you could say, hurtling headlong into this, you could say, mindset where, you know, they evaluate their consumption, their career plans, you know, based upon whether or not these companies that they're going to interface with, you know, do reflect their values. And if this idea of sustainability or some sort of effective response to climate change is important to them, they're really going to be using this as the criteria for, you know, who they engage with both, you know, how they spend money and, you know, who they decide to work for. I don't know if there's any metrics 
that have been generated that can reflect that. But I, I, I kind of got a feeling, for instance, that's where the, the activist, the activist push, for instance, on the Exxon board is coming from. You know, these are generally younger people that, you know, that, uh, um, you know, are, are getting these board spots than, you know, the ones that they're replacing, right? Change the coach kind of change is going to come thing, whether or not, yeah, whether or not the companies respond to it quick. So, and I think that also might even have this dynamic on when you talk about how long a lot of this is going to take. It could very well be Gen Z is not going to wait as long as they're not going to wait until they're 40 or 50. You know, the, the, the 20 somethings of today are not going to wait until they're, you know, mid 40s or mid 50s to see a solution to this. Well, they might have to, unfortunately, and that's yeah. the reality. There's only so yeah, much there's a, to go around. There's not a lot of choice in the, this matter, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, I, I don't think this is – I think this is one where ideology actually meets reality and loses. Um, you, you have to have a different transition plan than the one we have right now. It's not going to work. I mean, can you call what they have right now a tradition, a, a, a plan, or is it just like the absence of a plan and trying to, you know, like the Band-Aid over the, the hole in the dam kind of thing? Can you really call it a plan? No. Um, thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Greg. Hi, Tino. Thanks, Chris. I'm glad you could lend that perspective. Good to see you again. And uh, we'll we'll be in touch.